I'm Paddy Hanlon, Production Sound Mixer with the CAS, and today I'm in conversation with Production Sound Mixer Mark Weingarten. substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Why? Because they're exclusive and fun and they lead to a better life. People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles. I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. What's with kids today, huh? No respect. We didn't run out of planes and television sets. We ran out of food. You can practically see it from here. What? Home. On reading Carol Urban's Meet the Winners piece about Maverick in this summer's CAS Quarterly, I was first made aware of Mark Weingarten. As I looked to his body of work, I was instantly moved to find out more about his long, varied and busy career. Anyway, will we kick this thing off? All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's try it. (laughs) Congratulations, first of all. CAS Award and an Oscar this year. You have two two Oscars, two Oscars at this point, two CAS, one Emmy, and I think five Oscar nominations. Is that correct? Yeah, something like that. (laughs) <laughs> you've you've stopped counting. <laughs> I know I have two Oscars. I yeah. think I have three CASs. I have an Emmy. I have a BAFTA. Um, and I have, according to my son, who periodically checks the internet, about about two hundred other awards I've never heard of from all kinds of organizations. I'm like, exactly. I'm like, yeah, who yeah, gave yeah. me an award? Okay, cool. Thank you. Too many to count. Kind of nominations <laughs> as well. But thank you so much. It's, it's an honor to be here. I'm happy to join yeah, us. No, it's it's well deserved. <laughs> I was looking at the, we'll touch on it later on, I was looking at the CAS quarterly interview you did. You touched on uh, some of the technique that you used in Maverick. But at the same time now, I want to kind of go back to the beginning with you. And just to see, was sound a thing for you? Was film a thing for you? Like what happened? How did you get dragged into this field that we're in? Okay. Um, yeah, for me, it was film. I grew up in New York City in the 60s and 70s, and I uh, I watched a ton of movies. I used to go to this movie theater called The Thalia up in the 90s. I lived on the Upper West Side, and it was kind of like the new Beverly here where they're always constantly playing like old um, movies. And so I watched tons of stuff there, and I was very immersed in movies. It's funny, too, because now you realize how um, accessible all that stuff is because of the internet, because of all the streaming services. But back then, I mean, you could only see was, we had what, three major channels of television and, uh, you know, the Late Late Show was the only place you're going to see a really old movie. So going up to the Thalia was really fun for me. Yeah, it's like like back in the day when you, uh, you know, you come in and you catch a movie on the TV and you're so happy that you caught it. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where, where now we kind of don't have that emotion anymore. I was, you know, and you have to explain to your kids, oh, if you wanted to see that show, you had to be home at 8 p.m. on, you know, whatever night it was and, and yeah, tuned yeah. to the right channel. And yeah. my uh, my dad had a friend who would get violent if, if you called him during laugh-in. He was just, uh, <laughs> but so anyway, so yeah, so I grew up and I was very invested in movies and uh, I took a, uh, in, in my high school, last year of high school, we had a little um, film production, uh, production and uh Hist, film history course and i took right. that and we watched um i know we watched um kiss me deadly which i loved and uh the godfather and mean streets i graduated right. in 77 so and um that was uh, all three of those movies i was like wow this is really great so this is like when you were a teenager you were going to all these movies and then you left high school right kind of with an interest in it i did and then um I went to college for a year, not uh, focusing on film, and then I just dropped out because I really wasn't into college. I told my parents I didn't want to go to school anymore. And my dad said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I, wanna, I think I want to work in film production. <laughs> so he said, he said um, I have a friend who uh, produces commercials. Why don't I introduce you to him and uh, see what he says? Because I said, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure if I should go to film school or get a job or what. Yeah, how do yeah. you how do you approach this? So I met my father's friend and he was very gracious. He took me to a really nice expensive lunch and he said film school is, is BS. What yeah. you want to do is get a job as a PA uh, and like I can he goes I can hook you up with some commercial contacts, you can work as a PA for them and you'll get to know sort of all the different jobs on the set and learn maybe which what you what you think you might want to do and maybe attach yourself to somebody in that department and and come up that way good advice so, yeah yeah so he gave me a, a few contact numbers and i called all of them and i sent out my like you know bs resume that i had made at the time and mm. and um and it took a few weeks but somebody finally agreed to give me a couple of days work and i worked as a pa and um they liked me so they kept me so i started working full-time as a production assistant on commercials but the thing was that they just had me drive all i did was drive so i would drive this giant Chrysler station wagon around New York City and I would pick up stuff and drop off stuff and every time I'd come to set I would like step on set and then they'd say oh great you're here good thanks for that thing now go get that thing I never yeah. really was on set the one thing I kind of learned about being on set was that when the red light was on you wanted to open the door very quietly and walk in which I realized <laughs> I was completely <laughs> wrong but that's what everybody did and I was like I was like, that's what you're supposed to do, right? So it's um, kind of like Starman. Do you remember Starman? <laughs> yeah, yellow light go Did very fast. Go very fast. <laughs> yeah, <then>. exactly. <laughs> One of my favorite, <laughs> my favorite line. I love Starman yeah. so much. After like almost a year of that, never getting to really learn anything, I just I quit. You know, I said this is enough. It's not working for me. So then I went to NYU undergrad film and television for about two years. Uh, where I got to make a bunch of films, um, like they they put us in uh, groups of four, mm. we make short films, and one each each film one person would be the DP, one would write the film, one would direct the film, the other person would do sound, and we mm. would rotate. So that's where I first really got to do sound, like actual real sound, where um, yeah. where I saw it put up on screen, and we would screen dailies in this great big movie theater, and I remember one day. Sitting there, I, there was a scene we had done where two people were whispering really quietly in a close-up, and I brought the mic like right in on their heads, and they projected in in dailies, and these you know these people were like gigantic on the screen, and it, the sound just was fantastic, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. 
Yeah. And I go, and I did that. That's You were turned good. on. Yeah. <laughs> I was really yeah. excited about it. So um, so that was sort of my first real taste of sound, like where I was like, that's that's cool. I could maybe want to do that. That's really neat. And yeah. um, and then along around that time, I saw um, Apocalypse Now at the Ziegfeld Theater, which is this fantastic theater in New York. And um, they, you know, that movie opens with that helicopter circling the theater and the doors playing the mm -hmm. end. And I was like, wow, sound really is a huge part of movies, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So then I got, then at NYU, I was able to get uh, job internships as a picture editor. Because I, I think I was mostly focused on editing, editing as being um, what I thought I wanted to do. So yeah, I, yeah. Edit, I edited a picture for a while and then... I got really claustrophobic and bored of the people I was working with in this little office for months and months. And one of the other editors, because we used to watch each other's cuts, we had like a, 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 um, a suite where there were like five or six editing stations, different movies were cutting in different rooms. So yeah. we'd all go visit each other's cuts. And one of the other editors said to me, um, hey, have you ever thought about sound editing? And I said, no, why? What is that exactly? And he said, well, I noticed that, you know, you do a lot of like, your own sort of sound editing with pre-lapse and, um, you know, hard cuts on sound and so forth. It seems like, you, you know, you, you intuitively do that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know I was doing that, basically. So he said, I have a, I know a sound editor that's looking for an assistant, you know, and I asked him to introduce me. And um, so I worked with, uh, yeah, he introduced me to Jeff Brown, the sound editor, and I did three pictures with him. And first picture of the production sound was fine. Second picture of the production sound was terrible. Third picture of the production sound was fine. So mm. I asked him, I said, you know, what was the deal with that second picture? And he said, well, production mixer didn't do a very good job. And I said, you know, can you explain to me like what constitutes what's good and what's not and you know, what happened and so forth. And, and he did. Yeah. Um, you know, mostly about matching backgrounds and getting the mic in, close enough to be appropriate for the shot and so forth. And mm. um, anyway, so I left school because my internships had turned into jobs and I went back to NYU and my friends were doing their final films, uh, their graduate, the, the, yeah, not yeah. graduate, but the films they would graduate, their final projects. And I said to them, hey, can I um, mix your final films? And a bunch of them were like, yeah, that'd be great because nobody there was really... At that time, <clears throat> there wasn't much of a focus on sound in the program. Yeah. So I was, and I said, you know, the only thing is that you have to rent a really good boom mic because I didn't like the mics they had in the rental department there or the checkout, whatever. So I made each of them either rent like a 416 or a Sheps or whatever. I think it was all 416s. I don't think I even knew about Sheps yet. Which was a good call on your behalf. They they were great, and they sounded great. I mean, so then they had the Student Academy Awards where they showed all the films, and um, my films really stood out because I was the only person that really knew what I was doing yeah. was mixing the sound. So after that, a bunch of people noticed that, and they came up to me, and they said, you know, if I ever make a movie, I'm going to hire you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, and um, gradually over time, that actually happened. Some of the people, you know, went on to make films and call me their first, you know, kind of small features or, you know, short projects and stuff. After that, I said, yeah, I want to work in sound. Um, I, I want to try being a boom operator. So, so in New York at the time, there were either like really big budget movies or like no budget movies, but nothing really in between. Right. And I wasn't going to certainly going to work on a big budget movie because there weren't that many of them and, and they were union people. I wasn't in the union yet. Yeah. Um, I was only going to work on really small projects. And 
the mixers who did those small projects who would be willing to hire me were the mixers that nobody wanted to work with anymore, basically. So <laughs> I worked for on and off for a couple of years. I worked basically with two of them. Right. Uh, one or the other. One had a 416 and an 816, and the other had a Neumann 81 and a Neumann 82. That's what was going on in them days, wasn't it? That was the kind of, although the yeah. Schopes was around, but like yeah. the Neumanns and the Sennheisers definitely were, that was a popular pair. Yeah. And the, and uh, I did find a pair of Sheps in uh, one of the mixer's cases one day, this little blue box, and I asked him what they were, and he goes, oh, those things are, they're no good, they're unreliable or something. I'm like, but they're so pretty, you know? So then I plugged in and I listened to him like, oh my God, this mic sounds fantastic. Yeah. But anyway, so after a while of working as a boom operator for these two guys, I went to this party one night for a birthday party for a friend of mine uh, from high school. And at the party, I ran into Ed Novick, who's a fellow sound mixer. Yeah. And uh, we're at the party and, uh, you know, people are like, so what do you do? What do you do? And, and I said to Ed, oh, you know, I do something nobody knows what it is. I'm a sound mixer for film. And he goes, that's what I do. And I go, don't kid around, Ed. He goes, no, I swear <laughs> to God, that's what I do. I go, how did that happen? Because both of us went to, we went to high school together and, uh, you know, had no, that was not in our future. You know, that was just, it just happened. Yeah, so yeah. so I was like, that's so crazy, Ed. So Ed was, um, because I had dilly-dallied around after school and had all these jobs in retail and so forth, he went right into sound mixing. So he was a couple of years ahead of me kind of professionally. Right. And, um, and, and you know, I always really liked Ed. And I said, hey, listen, if there's ever an opportunity that I could work with you so I could, you know, kind of understand, so to watch you work, learn how to work, you know. Yeah, yeah. That would be fantastic. So he's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll keep that in mind. So then a few months later, a year later, I remember he called me and he said that he had this movie that was um, that was centered around a dance contest and they had potentially as many as 35 songs for playback. So they were budgeting a full-time playback operator. Um, and he said, you know, if, you, if you'd be interested, I'll, I'll put you up for it. And I said, yeah, it'd be fantastic, you know. So I that it happened, I got the job and it was... Um, it was back in the days we were doing playback off Nagras and using like white out to mark like you know the the ta the quarter inch tape where the yeah 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 where the cues were and stuff. In relation to that, would you use two machines so you mm -hmm. can quickly have an option, or were you just dealing with one spool? What I was doing was I had um I would make uh, multiple reel like I had multiple take up reel reels yeah, and I yeah. would have like one song across two reels and I put it over on, on the desk, you know, and then I'd have the second song and I put those reels up. Right. And I, it was so great. It was it's so mad, isn't it? It's it mad when archaic. you think about it. It's yeah. archaic. And we had earwigs and, you know, half the time the earwigs didn't work. And it was like a whole. Nothing's changed there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have these like a couple of earwigs that I call the miracle earwigs because for yeah. some reason they always work. And nobody, nobody gets it. Like nobody else on the crew understands. Yeah, yeah. You're like, like, because the thing works perfectly. And then, and then I go, I go. You don't understand. This is a miracle. Okay, this stupid thing is working <laughs> perfectly yeah, yeah. of this enormous distance every time. I don't know why. Yeah, and I'm, I don't yeah. want to jinx it. Maybe I am right now. But yeah, you know, don't let, don't let anybody else <laughs> handle them. You know what I mean? It'll be a sad day. Touch wood if someone steps on one or something like that. Definitely touch wood. Back to the Ed thing. So he hires me to do this playback job, and it's really a 
it's actually the playback part of it is quite complicated, but it ended up working out. Yeah. And um and it was fabulous for me to actually get to watch Ed work because Ed is a really good sound mixer. And I um yeah, I finally saw, oh, this is the craft. This is what I need to do. This is how, you know. And uh, and then in, uh what happened in that movie was that uh they got behind the dance um the dance contest put the movie behind schedule, so they formed a second unit and I ended right. up mixing all the second unit, which is great. Lovely. Lovely. Really yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was good. So now I came back to work armed with like the knowledge I really needed to be like really good at my job. And then it was just a question of applying it basically. Yeah, it's great to have that opportunity, especially when you're that hungry, when you're younger and you're hungry, like you're just sucking it all in, all the info, everything you're seeing. And it's like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, that worked. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's an exciting time, actually. I thought totally. it was very exciting when I first got into film. I was like, man, I, I just add it up, you know? Yeah, me too. Me too. Still do to an extent, you know, when things work out or, you know, you know, when you're when you're trying to work things through. Like yeah. the process, I suppose you got that with Maverick. I don't want to get into Maverick right now, but like it's it's the project where okay, I'm gonna sit and I'm gonna have a few beers and I'm gonna think this thing through. Oh yeah, I love I love that process. Many things that I did, I'm writing it down on the back of a napkin. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah, sure, <laughs> I do absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With Ed, when we did that, the final scene of that movie, it's like one of those, you know the. The, everybody gets together scenes, you know, and yeah, yeah. we were going to shoot it in this yard. And uh, Ed was like, he called like a sound department meeting. He's like, we got to sit down. We got to figure this out, you know? And we did the mm. same thing. We drew it all out on a piece of paper and, you know, it's going to be these two people enter from here and they're going to be on uh, wires, but then these people enter from here and they'll be on a boom that'll lead over to this and that. And, you know, and then we'll have a second boom here for this. And, that. and we like, you know, we worked it all out. And, um, one of the biggest issues, of course, back in the day, radio mics weren't what they are now. So reception yeah, yeah. was always a consideration. And we wanted to get the receivers as close as we could. Mm. And and we wanted Ed to be able to see. I don't know if we had uh, video monitors. I don't think we did. He wanted to be able to see everything. Yeah. And, um, and, it, and yeah, whatever. And there was, you know, cable issues. Like, you had to conceal all the cables. Anyway... The greatest thing was there was like a little tree house in the middle of this set, like the the yard that we're shooting <laughs> in. And we Perfect. put Ed up in the tree house. It was exactly. so great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, they're, and they're shooting the trees in, but he's up above the cameras all the time. <laughs> it was so great. It's kind of genius, the whole thing. That's but, it, isn't it? It's yeah. that little work, working it out. It's like, oh, this is, this is going to work. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it did. It worked great. You know, we finished that. I came back to New York. That movie was shot in South Carolina. And, um, do you remember what movie it was? It's the movie's named Shag. Shag. S-A- yeah. It's like a, a shag is a kind of a dance, evidently. It's All like, the stuff where they're driving in the car on the way to the dance contest, that was my second unit work. <laughs> lovely. Lovely. <laughs> I think I had maybe one of those Shure mixers or something. <laughs> remember those terrible Oh, mixers. the little tree channel ones. <laughs> yeah, the, I, think so. I think it's an FP33 yeah, or something. something like it's that. like... I think I had to use one once for teaching people, and I was like, uh, it's just like, uh, that's not not nice to use. And it's got like a v, VU meter that just has no relationship to reality whatsoever. Yeah, like a, whatsoever. a bullshit thing that just, it just flicks from left to right. It's like, um, you immediately learn to ignore it completely. You're like, does it sound okay? Good. That's that's the, yeah. that's where you de- determine it. So anyway, Exactly. So I, exactly. Like, you learn to use your ears when you're yeah. using equipment like that, yeah. Okay, so at this point, I'm I'm 
working in New York, I'm doing after school specials and stuff, and and I'm not. I know there's no no real opportunity for advancement, so I start telling my friends that I'm thinking about going to L.A., and everybody says, "Don't go to L.A. if you don't have a job." So mm. I book another um, after school special, and my friend Ed Novick calls me from L.A. and he says, "I think I'm going to turn down this movie here, Freddy's Dead. Um, can you do it?" And I said, "Well." No, because I've committed to this after-school special, and I'd love to take the opportunity, but I committed to this after-school special here in uh, in New York, and you know I, I can't really back out. It's right. too close. Too close. Yeah. So he's like, "Okay, well, all right." So then, that the next day, I go to work on like a documentary or something, one day job, and I come home kind of late at night, and I park my car in front of my house, and I unload all my equipment. And I'm really tired, and I just fall asleep on the couch. And I wake up like around midnight, and I remember, oh, my car is not parked on the good side of the street for tomorrow morning. I have to get up at like 7 to move the car. I'd rather just move it now. And I move my car around the corner, and I get a good car- parking spot. And as I'm walking back to my house, I get held up by these two guys, one with a gun and one with a knife. And um <laughs> And I'm like, oh, you know, and, and they said, um, give us all your money. And I said, here's all the money. I had like $3 in my pocket. And they said, this is all you have? And I said, well, I just went out to move my car. And the guy goes, you have a car? And I was like, oh, what am I so stupid? So, <laughs> And so I um, I said, well, here's my car key. You can have it. It's this red car around the corner. And, and the guy can't drive the car. It's a stick shift. And he turns the key in the ignition and keeps smashing into the car in front of him. And he gets really agitated. He comes out, he's waving his gun around. He goes, what's wrong with this goddamn car? And I said, it's a stick shift, man. And he goes, you drive. And I said, no, I'll teach you how to drive a stick. It's really easy. He goes, shut up, get in the car. So the guy with the gun gets in the back. Guy with the knife gets in the front. And they make me drive him around all all over Brooklyn, scoring like crack and smoking crack in the car with me. And Uh. I keep saying, Really tired, guys. I'm ha- it takes five minutes to learn how to drive a stick. You're welcome to have the car. You know, <laughs> just like yeah, but like were you no- like you're nervous as well? Were you like were you shipping? Yeah, I, oh, I want to get out of there so bad, but I just was like, you know, it's, I, <laughs> I think what saved me was I was so aggravated because I was so tired. I'm like, yeah, like, yeah I'm yeah, really yeah. exhausted. Just you could have the stupid car. I don't care about. Just let me go home and go to sleep. And they have a whole conversation about what to do about me and. One guy's saying, we should just waste him. You know, he saw our faces, he knows our names. And the other guy's like, come on. The guy cooperated, you know, give him a break. And so they, the nicer guy, the one with holding the knife, he grabs me by the shoulder, shoved me out into traffic. And there's one car is rolling up as I roll out into the street. And I, and I it stops. I put my hands on the hood of the car, and it's a cop car. Oh. They caught the guys. I get home, and I'm, you know, totally freaked out and i'm just saying to myself you know i knew my time in new york was running out i felt it like i've been thinking for a while it's time to get out of new york and then i the universe has given you an outlook yeah the universe gave me so um and then i think well you know i was just offered an opportunity to work in california i should I should do it, you know. So I call him back. On, I call Ed back, and I say, yeah, I think I want to do Freddy's Dead if it's still available. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking because I've got this after-school special I'm supposed to do, and I don't know if I should back out of it or not. So 
by the time they finally decided to hire me on Freddy's Dead, it was the day of our production meeting for the after-school special. And I had try, I've been trying to call the UPM for a couple of days to sort of give her a heads up that maybe I would be doing this, but she was so busy in pre-production that she never returned my calls. So I ended up going to the production meeting for this after-school special and sitting through the whole thing. <laughs> Then, <laughs> for your few words at the end of it all. Yeah, giving give my input and so forth. And then as soon as the meeting was over, I grabbed her. I said, we have to talk. You come with me in your office right now. We need to talk. So she said, okay, what is it? You know, I take her in the office, and I, I tell her the whole story about being carjacked, and she's just super sweet about it. She's like, oh, my God, that's so awful. Yes, I totally understand. You, you need to get out of New York. No, don't think twice about it, you know. We'll find somebody to replace you on this thing. I'm so sorry that happened to you. She was really, really sweet. That's very understanding. Like yeah. a lot of people would be like, what are you doing? You know, It's nice. We're actually still friends. I know her pretty well still. That's uh, great. See her That's periodically great. in L.A. But um, so um, so I came out and I did Freddy's Dead. <laughs> That's how I got to California. <laughs> <laughs> so Back then, Freddy's Dead, like... It was a well-set-up franchise at that point. Were you a little bit excited about it? Yeah, no, I was thrilled. I mean, it, it was it's Nightmare 6. Yeah, and yeah, I always yeah. said, this way I can work my way back toward 1 eventually, I was hoping. So I could do 6, and then maybe I'd move up to a 5, and hopefully right. a 4, and a 3, oh, yeah, and a 2. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually maybe I could do some some series where I did the first of. It's a great one to start off with. Yeah, it, it, was so, it was super fun. And we had Alice Cooper play the dad. Alice Cooper yeah. was super nice. Yeah. And um, Johnny Depp did a little cameo, and I got to meet him. He was very sweet. One question actually comes yeah, to mind. Yeah. With his dialogue, Freddie. Uh, Robert, Robert England. Robert England. Do you, did you, you just recorded the dialogue and they treated it in post, or was there a lot of ADR? No, he just treated it. I always Good. put a lob on him. I remember that was... Uh, they wanted it close. It was discussed, yeah. We, yeah. we boomed him and we put a lob on him and I had a, a stereo nog I put one on each track so they had both. Right, yeah. And, or yeah, or yeah. if the boom was covering other, whatever. He was always on a lob. And I remember trying to get the bump out of his sweater all the time because he has this one sweater he wears like all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like, I'd say it stinks. 25 of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, they exactly. have like 25 of them so you had to like... Some of them were better with the bump in the microphone and some were not. But so, so then when he was delivering on set, did he have that growl in his voice to start he, with? Yeah, he, it is, he does do that kind of growly thing. Like yeah. I presume, like, yeah, it's a preset on a on maybe a harmonizer or something like that. But for, <laughs> yeah. him, but for him even, just to the continuity for him across the movies is great. Yeah, he talked, yeah. You know, he, had, he did some kind of growly thing he did for sure. Yeah. He was, yeah, yeah. he was really nice. He was a good guy. I liked him. Yeah. He gave me his hat and he signed it. Get out of town. One of his hats, yeah. There is one I want to ask you about. Yeah, go for if it. If you'll take a bit of playback. I thought you were supposed to be here last Friday. I was beginning to think I'd have to find somebody else. You are here for the job, aren't you? You must be Wayne. Yes. And you're Lyle from Dallas, right? Right. Good. 
I'll just, uh, why you take your coffee and let's go back in the office. Red Rock West. <laughs> I love it. Director John Dahl, Nicolas Cage, Dennis Hopper, Laura Flynn Boyle, and J.T. Walsh. Yeah, yeah and that's, that scene is J.T. Walsh and Nick Cage. Yeah, and Nick is, he's carrying a bit of, um, remember Ray's in Arizona, was that beforehand? Yeah. But it, it is kind of that character running through it at that point, isn't there? Yeah, I don't know, I don't know which was first, but yeah, it's definitely sort of that persona, yeah. <laughs> what equipment were you at at that point, do you remember? Yeah, that's going to be still Nagra. And uh, Shep's, but I was very committed to Shep's mics when right. I was uh, for years. I boomed everything interior with Shep's, and uh, I guess I was using the four sixteens on the exteriors. Uh, it's a reliable mic, like you said. Yeah, yeah. You could hammer nails in with it. <laughs> still, yeah, still work. But um, but that's interior scene. And that's all Shep's and uh, into Nagra, and I think. I, I had an old Sonus Axe that I mixed most of my early movies on. Like right. Old, looked pretty beat up, but it sounded great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever works. It's I like, really knew how to use that thing. I really understood the the gain structure on it really well. Yeah. And the, and the limiters and all that kind of, I really knew how to work that. I love that board. Yeah. One of the greatest things about red rock west is i met john Dahl, the director who i absolutely adored he's just like i don't know he and i just have the exact same sense of humor and um he's this big strapping guy from montana and um i couldn't i and a really good director and a really smart uh he has a really good set manner that like you know everybody likes him and they look yeah. up to him and they want to do the best they can for him you sounds know, like a dream good. yeah yeah, he's a great guy. So we did. We ended up doing three pictures together: at Red Rock West first, then uh, the Last Seduction, and then Rounders, which we did in New York, yeah. which was pretty cool having him in New York. We did, we went to New York briefly on Last Seduction, also. Yeah, Red Rock was all out in Arizona, New Mexico, and, and a little bit in in L.A. Um, yeah, that was great. And then uh, ultimately, I was able to help John later get into TV directing because I was, when I was doing True Blood with Alan Ball, who I became very friendly with. Yeah. Um, we, he, one weekend we both saw a movie that John Dollar directed and we were, came in on Monday and we were talking about it and he, he was talking about it and I said, oh, my friend directed that movie and he goes, oh, you know that director? And I go, yeah. He goes, is he good? I go, he's the greatest guy. I adore him. And he said, um, do you think he might be interested in directing an episode of True Blood? And I was like, heck yeah, he would. That must and be so a nice I, feeling to be able yeah, to uh, hand work back to a director, you know what I mean? Especially was, one that you respect. Yeah, it was so cool. And so then um, I called John right away and he got he hooked up with them and he started directing True Blood and now he directs tons of TV stuff. He's like, you know, all these series. like so good. I'm so happy for him. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> How did you get on with Dennis Hopper? He was really fun. I really good. liked him. Good. Um, I, was, I wasn't sure what to expect. Yeah, yeah. I was a little, a little bit scared, <laughs> but he turned out to be great. And uh, I, uh, there was this one moment where I, uh, I knew he didn't like to be wired. So uh, there was a, sh a shot where he was saying a line kind of distant from the camera, and the only thing I could do would be to put a wire on him, or I could ask him to um, delay the line a little bit, and get closer to the boom. Then we yeah. could, you know, 
get yeah. it. So I went up to him and I talked to him about it. And uh, I said, Dennis, you know, I know you don't want to be wired and I don't want to, but I would have to if you continue to say that one line where you're saying it. But if you waited a couple of steps and got a little closer um, to us when you said it, then it, we'd be okay on the boom. And he goes, are you asking me to speak up? And I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying if you waited, delayed the line a little bit as you're walking toward us, then we'd be fine. He goes, okay, yeah, I'll do that. No problem. As long as you're not asking me to speak up. <laughs> like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and JT, that voice, man, I, I, he could talk the quietest of any human on the planet and you could still hear him. That was so great. I loved yeah. his voice. Yeah, JT Walsh. I like JT a lot. He, he and my boom guy became really good friends on Red Rock, and they went. They were like traveling buddies. They used to go on vacations together. Really? I don't, I don't know where that came from. From one cold classic to another one. Okay. And I'm going, I'm going to hit you with another bit of play. Okay. Winky, where's Winky? Who's Winky? It's all right. He's Winky. probably just oh, playing with Sam. Oh, the dog. This is what I do. I'll gouge your left eye out with my thumb. I shit you not, you freak. I'm gonna get down here right now. I'm gonna punch you in the eye till it turns to jelly. Get down here. I'm gonna stab you with forks until you bleed. How about that? Some beautiful dialogue. Brush your eye and push you in the eye till it turns to jelly. Oh my god. Larry Miller. It's kills definitely me. a cold classic. Christopher Gaston. Yeah. The, Spinal but, Tap. That yeah, that's the best in show, yeah. <laughs> that was so fun. I, I think back, you know, um I had done one movie previous to this with Chris Guest, which was great, but um I think Best in Show may have been the best the most fun I ever had on any movie I ever worked on. Yeah. And all the Chris projects are pretty much some of my favorite movies. I always love working with him and his his group of people. Yeah. But the really, really hard thing is not breaking up in the middle of a take and <laughs> wrecking it. It's so hard not to laugh half the time. There's just it's like it's packed full of comedy, great comedy <laughs> actors, isn't it? Like no no matter where you turn, <laughs> one bit. I want to play another little bit, just a small yeah. bit. I think the Shih Tzu is a terrific dog. What's that one? The Shih Tzu. The Shih Tzu. That's one you don't uh, you don't play around with that name, do you? It doesn't come no. trippingly off the tongue. Stewardess, can I take a Shih Tzu on my carry-on, or does it have to be stowed? Yes, that's uh, so is that a Shih Tzu? An old, an old your... joke, but a good one, nevertheless. Yes, so. That's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> it's just, Fred, it's... Fred Willard kills me. He's so funny. And um, Jim Piddick is the straight man there. He's like, I don't know how he kept a straight face with all that stuff. You were saying before that it was loosely scripted or if, if scripted at all, was it's it? It's not. It's there's a, The script has no scripted dialogue. It just uh, just has, it says like, you know, so-and-so get ready to go to the show. So-and-so unload their luggage or whatever. That's all. It's, that's the entirety of what's written. And then so it was so like all the little scene description, essentially. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. But it's a hundred percent improv. So, and the thing is, uh, it tends to just get funnier and funnier at each take because the, they're not stuck with anything. Yeah, um, yeah. And Chris found a technique of shooting, usually sort of two over the shoulders kind of um, simultaneously. So they could, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, they, they can cut between the two, 
no so you what. so you weren't getting nailed either like it, it was you, you no, just never oh good you know, oh, he, he's nice very very aware of sound and very like accommodating like yeah if, if i ever get in trouble he, he i just go to him right away and we'll figure it out you know that's because amazing he, to hear. And he he wants to make sure we don't ever have to replace anything because you know it's really hard to replace it. You're you're making it up. You know? He's aware yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It, it it's 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 ad lib, and then it's like you're into just all kinds of arguments and like, <laughs> yeah. uh, what what do you call it? That yeah overlaps yeah uh, and stuff, overlaps like, and stuff. It's just yeah, shocking, overlap. like yeah. <laughs> but um, but you know we all just Chris is he couldn't be cooler. I mean, he's such a great guy, and he's so funny. Actually, in relation to that, in relation to back then, I don't know what we're into. We're into the nineties for sure. But um, like Red Rock West or Best in Show, in relation to wiring people, like were you getting into wiring everybody at that point, or no. were you just still making decisions of uh, yeah of your no. own? I, I I don't wire. I I. I I can't even count. I don't know if I wired anybody on Red Rock, maybe once or twice. And yeah, yeah. Nobody on Best in Show. I never, I just double boom everything all the time. Excellent. That sounds like a, a dream. Yeah. And they light, they intentionally light like uh, Chris's movies so we can boom it because they know that that's critical. It's great knowledge to know that you're going into a production that's that's going to look after you like that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we did a bunch of Christmas movies with Roberto Schaefer as a DP, who's just a sweet guy, really sweet. But he, he completely knew the drill. And I remember we did one without him, and it was just this nightmare of fighting the lights all the time and trying to explain. Yeah. It was my hardest one, too, because it was called The Mighty Wind. And um, the thing with that movie was they were playing live music all the time. So I had kind of worked out like the way I wanted to do it. It's live acoustic music. There are folks, the, the folksmen are the group that's in the, the main group. And so, yeah. um, and what I wanted to do was to hang a chef's pair in the center of every shot mm. and then double boom with chefs so that what I would do is we do the dialogue. And then when they went into the movie, I'd pull down the booms and just let the chef's pair play and then when it looked like they were going back into dialogue, I'd bring the booms back in. So yeah, yeah. the music would play in stereo and it would ma the mics would match enough that it was, you know, it worked. It, it totally ended up working. I was really happy with how it worked yeah, out. Yeah. But sounds nice. I had to fight so hard to get, you know, and it and like I was like like I could hang the pair usually and, and it, no matter what. But yeah. now I need the booms to match that. I don't want it to change. You know, if I wire them or whatever, it's not going to work because they're talking and then going right into music and then talking again. It's not. Yeah. It needed to be seamless. It has so, to exist I, as one kind of picture. Yeah. Yeah. Sound well, soundscape. Noise. You don't want to hear like soundscape. too big of a difference. Exactly. So, yeah. But it ended up working out great. I was really, it was a big fight because the DP didn't understand what I was trying to do or or the level of importance of it, you know, like. Like, am I being too self-important? It's like, I'm sorry. I, I don't like to be this person, but I have to be because this is not an option here, you know? Yeah, there are those scenarios where you need to go, look, it's only going to work this way. Chris, like, was very aware of, like, my situation and, and my pain and, like, very on Good. my side. And, you know, I didn't want anybody to get replaced or anything bad to happen. I just wanted <laughs> to somehow make it work out, you know? And that was... Yeah, yeah on the table at one point. I was like, no, I, I'm going to work this out, please. You know, I don't. One thing I wanted to say, I forgot, was, I wanted to add earlier was, you know, one yeah. thing I learned from booming for these low budget guys in New York was, you know, they, 
they were not well liked, but it was ninety percent because all they ever did was complain. And yeah. I said, you know, I'm not going to be that guy when when I grow up. If I ever get to mix movies, I'm not yeah. going to be the guy that just complains. And I'm going to make sure that I weigh in in a positive way periodically. Not all, not necessarily all the time, but. Mm. You know, even when on a non-sound way, I, I usually say something to the director like, "Oh, that was a great scene. I really liked it." You know, exactly like, like, that kind of thing. Just to not be the negative guy all the time, and then, you know, and then to be when you do have an issue, to try not to be just complain about it. Bring up yeah. a solution. Bring a yeah. solution. Say, you know what, we're having a hard time with this, but this is what I'm going to suggest that would be better, and maybe that would work for both of us, you know. And then, you know, whatever that is. And I mean, I've numerous times where they shoot a wide and a tight, which yeah. drives all of us insane. Insane. I'll say, you know, how about this? Instead of doing a close-up on the person sitting on the couch in the wide shot, let's do, if you could do a close-up on the guy standing up, mm. I can get the overhead mic, pretty close to him in the wide shot it'll it might not be such a bad match but yeah you know the overhead mic is eight six feet eight feet away from the person sitting down so yeah you know you still get your two shots your wide and your tight but i'll also get sound that matches and a lot yeah. of times i'll be like oh yeah we could do that you know i'm meeting you i'm meeting you halfway i'm bringing you a solution yeah yeah, yeah i agree yeah. i agree after best in show yeah we're into your prime time emmy for the West Wing. And I just oh, want to yeah. wanna just hop off the movies for a little minute and just ask you about the West Wing because obviously that's a... Yeah. Actually, let me, let me it's just... It's a character. Say, let me bring in one thing. Before we talk about the Absolutely. West Wing, I, I did um, this movie with Robert Altman called Cookie's Fortune. Oh, right, and, yeah. Uh, I had, you know, I, Altman's sort of legendary, you know, his sound yeah, yeah. thing where everybody talks at the same time, multi-track and all that. So... Yeah. Um, and he owned uh, multi-tracks. So... When I did Cookie's Fortune, I went into his um, his equipment closet and I pulled out a couple of DA eighty eights, ninety eights. I forget what they were. And um, there was there was both, wasn't there? Yeah, it was an eighty eight and a ninety eight. Yeah, and I and I put them on my cart and I ran ISOs to um, to them, and then uh, I would and he would do his thing where we use a lot of radios, uh, mm. booms as well, but a couple of booms, you know, some scenes six eight radios, whatever. Um, he would make little groups of people, like he'd say, like these three people are talking to each other, and those were, and we would put like one mic on each on a, somebody in each group, so you have like, you kind of like tune in on the background of what these people are saying, yeah, and um, and uh, and I would roll the multi track on it, and then sometimes what I would do is I would do remixes off of the multi track for yeah. dailies. Because I couldn't, I would only listen to what you know, what the camera was seeing and what the boom was picking up for yeah. my mix predominantly. But sometimes I, so and I started doing some remixes off the multi tracks, and I realized how amazing that was, and and uh, like just to have that ability. It's all pre fader. It doesn't matter if you miss a, a cue or whatever. It's still on the multi track. Exactly. So yeah. when I got to the West Wing, um, and I was using Warner Brothers equipment, I insisted. I said, uh, I want multi-track i want a da88 or 98 or whatever it is that you have and, th and they wouldn't give it to me they said oh you never get that with a single camera tv series or whatever and i go i don't care i want it give it to me mm. and then i went into their equipment room and i saw that they had literally shelves and shelves of them they must have like a hundred of them or something i'm not exaggerating piled on top of each other and i go give me one of those things for christ's sake you got a million of them 
So they said, fine. So they gave it to me, and I started multi-tracking the West Wing. And what was so fantastic about that was because I had so many crossfades to do. Because West Wing is yeah. all like, all pretty much a lot, a ton of wires. And like, you know, these people are talking, and then they peel off, and then they'll bring those people up. And they and then, so it's like crossfade, 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 crossfade all over the place. Yeah. But the thing that was so great about the multi-track for me was I I wasn't scared of making mistakes. You could pull it out of the multi-track if I screwed up. Yeah. So I started making like really bold fades, you know, and doing a lot of like hot handoffs between two two booms and stuff. And I would, you know, I would maybe maybe would phase on the first take, but then I would figure it out. But mm. I was so unafraid now of like it wasn't like what I did was it. This is permanent. It's done. It's going on this Nagra, and there ain't nowhere else. It's now it had a new place to go. Where if there was something that wasn't great about it, they could go back and fix it. And I just love that. And I've taken that. The rest of my career, I'm just like, hey man, I got it. You know, I've got on the ISOs. If if what I did, if what I, what I attempted didn't work out, you mm. still have it. You know, it's it's a great comfort to have. And in saying that as well, do you think that it honed your skills more, being oh, able to go like, absolutely it's more confidence? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, I didn't talk about this before. Is I I love to go to the mix on my project if I can. Um, if you can, yeah, yeah. for sure, yeah. I love going to the mix. I find I learn so much from it, you know. I did it a lot when I when I started off, and in Ireland we had a little bit more play with post. And there were, back then as well, you, you knew who was doing post when you started the project. Sometimes now you just right. don't know what's going on. Right. As you're saying, you learn a lot. And even when I got here, I sat in on a lot of mixes. It's it's enjoy yeah. like it's it's part of our job. That's what it's we're great. Like, yeah. And I think even for the director, it's the first time where they see all the elements come together, you know, mm. at one time. So even they're like, you know, excited about this. It's like, you know, they've been cut, watching the cut for six months. They've seen all these different, you know, variations. They've heard temp music. They've heard, you know, some of the effects, you know, but now yeah. here it's all coming in, you know. House of Cards, I wanted to ask you about Okay, the, yeah. Be, because I remember when that came out, that was a thing. It, it, it was a thing around many sets. Yeah. Where it was like, they're painting out the booms. Yeah. Painting out the booms thing, yeah. So, because um, I did where the wild things was, the Spike Jones, which was so much fun. I love Spike Jones. We right. get along fabulously. And his sound editor is named Ren Kleiss. And Ren Kleiss is Fincher's sound editor. And that's how I got connected to Fincher, was Ren recommended me for Benjamin right. Button. And it was like maybe second or third day of shooting on Benjamin Button. We were shooting a scene where um, Elias Cotius is, uh, he's introducing this clock that he made in this train station. It kicks off the film and the whole idea of aging backwards and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he's introducing his clock at this train station. It's this giant room, like Grand Central Station room. And he's up on a platform in the middle of it. And... Um, Fincher is shooting kind of a, a tight shot on him as well as a shot that includes pretty much the entire room. So after a few takes, I go over to Fincher. I don't know him very well. It's like third day of shooting. I'd never worked with him before. Um, and I said, hey, Finch, I probably maybe even call him David because that's how you know a newbie on the David Fincher set because nobody calls him David except everybody calls him Fincher <laughs> or Finch or something like that. Uh, well, you have but to you have to feel it out. You're like, um, David, um, so anyway, so I go up to him and I say, hey, you know, if you uh, just could give me a few takes on the tight camera only, 
mm-hmm. I could make this sound much better. And he says, well, where do you want to put the mic? And I said, well, you know, like maybe in the wide shot. He goes, well, he goes, well, just show me where you want to put the mic. So I said, yeah. I had Larry Commons who was booming for me. He's way up in the greens on the top of this warehouse thing that we're mm-hmm. shooting in. And he brings the mic, he stands a pole all the way down and he hangs down and you can see in the wide shot his like his body, his arm, the whole boom pole, everything in, but the mic's like right over, you know, right nice for the tight shot in the right yeah. spot. And Fisher goes, Yeah, that's fine, I'll just paint it out. I'm like, What? So in the exactly. wide shot, I mean it's just like totally like you know, but but Fincher, who is so aware of what he's gonna do in post mm. and is and he's if he's going to paint stuff out, he's happy to paint the boom out too. Why not? You know, which made total sense. So the whole time I worked with him on all the different movies and different projects I did, including um, the, uh, what's it House called? Of, you just said House of Cards. House of Cards. Thank you. Was that, was that Fincher? Was it? It was. Yeah. Fincher. Okay. It was like Fincher's show. He directed the pilot episodes and then he was kind of the showrunner the whole time. Okay. 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 Um, that so, was just the first time I heard about it. Like, and it was a thing. It went, That went everywhere. It was like, they're painting booms out. Seeing as you're talking about Fincher, I have a bit of playback for you. It's a funny thing about coming home. Looks the same, smells the same, feels the same. Did I ever tell you I've been struck by lightning <laughs> seven times? Once when I was sitting in my truck, just minding my own business. You realize what's changed is you. And late one morning, not long after I've been back, It's a long, it's a long playback, but I wanted to leave it in because of the, um, the beautiful music. Alexander Desplat, he's done countless movies and I noticed as well, like you're getting into, mm. this is getting into the, the, the heavy batters now and yeah. everything is just perfect. So was that your first Fincher movie? That was my first Fincher movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I personally really like Fincher. I think he's an amazing filmmaker. I think he's actually kind of underappreciated in a way, if that's yeah. possible. Yeah. Um, I think actually what he did on Benjamin Button is so spectacular. It's beautiful. But but beyond that, it's like people don't realize. Like he, he did such a seamless job of aging Brad backwards. Yeah. It, and, and it was so complicated to do that. Mm. But he did it so perfectly that people don't even under, don't even realize how much was involved in doing it. We had all these different guys play play Brad's body. Yeah, yeah. In different states. And yeah. they would have like blue hoods on. Yeah. And then at some point, Brad himself is in the picture because it's now the right age. And we did aging stuff with makeup and so forth. 
but then what we did later was we did a facial replacement thing where we brought Brad into a stage and um, I put multiple microphones above his head at different distances because um, what he was he was he was acting to the cut so his face would turn he would turn his head and so forth as the per person on and he would say um, his lines and the cut would go from wide to tight to medium whatever it was so we had to mic all sizes at the same time oh I see yeah yeah um, because it was just his head you know and but then his head was placed on the bodies of these other people this is yeah. a technique that had never really been used before them before Benjamin Button the only time it had been used was for this Orville Redenbacher popcorn commercial, <laughs> which if you ever saw it, it's like the head is so disembodied, like, the, it's yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. it looks wrong. Since Jurassic Park, like that was the next thing everybody was talking about Benjamin Button. Yeah. That's what I remember. It was just okay. like, this is insane. It was amazing. And there was a moment in the middle of shooting where um, Fincher called me over and he said, uh, check this out, check this out. And he shows me on his laptop one of the composited scenes where they had put Brad's head on, on the body. It was the one where the, the old guy's on the, in the wheelchair on the porch wheeling himself yeah, yeah. back and forth. Yeah. And, and I go, oh, it's like, it looks amazing. And Fincher goes, yeah, it's going to work. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, that is some kind of guts to mount a $200 million movie on like, this hopefully this is gonna work. <laughs> I mean, that takes some kind of moxie, yeah, but um, yeah. it worked great. I mean, it's amazing. It was magic. It's cinema magic. You know what I mean? I think so too. And they they have all those AI arguments and all now, but I, I guarantee you, like a tale like that, just won't it, it won't exist. There's so mm. much kind of experience and passion and you know life experience. It's just a beautiful tale. It's cinema making just. At its finest, I think. I, I yeah. some people might disagree with us, but I think it's it's a beautiful piece. I think it's beautiful too. My kid yeah. loves it. He's I mean he's sixteen. He thinks like the best. He, he always talks about it being one of my, the favorite of my movies of his. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Which I I also really like it. My son Oliver was born right after we finished principal photography, and I made a lot of recordings of him. And I was talking to Ren Kleiss, our post mixer. And um, he needed baby sounds for the Benjamin Button baby when it's first born. So I, uh, I made, I had made all these recordings of Oliver, and I separated them into two classes. I had happy baby and sad baby, and I sent him those files. And a lot of uh, Oliver's crying and giggling is uh, included Brilliant. in the Benjamin Button Brilliant. soundtrack. <laughs> That's his first film credit. In in relation to the shots and your and your mic placements, mm -hmm. did you just kind of get a camera in and go right? Give us a you know, give us an eighteen or give us different sizes, and then just read off that, or were you just kind of placing it from your own knowledge, if that makes sense? Meaning on the facial replacement, or yeah, like the placement it, of the mics. You were saying, you know, <coughs> no, I like, just I just um, arbitrarily like in the. Um, when we went to do the facial replacement, which was after we shot the whole movie and yeah, it yeah. edited, uh, we went in this little stage. I just kind of speculated, this is what I should do. So I took three mics, I put one, like a chef's, like just right over his head. I yeah. took a, another, I think it was a chef's, like sort of medium-ish. And then yeah, I yeah. took a CS3 and I put it far away, like yeah, it a makes wide shot. 
it makes complete sense. Like it, it's nearly like the post approach where they had the veneer uh-huh. and the fire, Mike. It makes complete sense. And I just figured, you know, I put them on three separate tracks, and then, yeah. you know, whatever Brad said, they could. And because he was he was working to a cut where he would be half the line might be tight, half or whatever. First line might be in a wide shot, second in. A, I see. Yeah, they would have all three to choose from in post. Yeah, yeah it's perfect. Yeah. yeah, it worked great. Brad was so cool. I was like, I really like him a lot. He's a really impressive person. But um, he he got the process so well. Like yeah. you know, he was watching his his double moving on a on a in a picture in a monitor, and he mimicked the movement so perfectly and said the lines so precisely. You know, at the right time, like yeah. there was no real lip sync. It didn't matter because the face is going to be replaced. But just yeah. for the timing of the scene to react to the other actors, which he was hearing, yeah, for the performance through, through headphones yeah. I was giving, it was really impressive yeah. to see. It's great to observe like an actor of that ilk doing it. I mean, there's some, Isn't it? There's, yeah, um, yeah, and and I, I think Brad is amazing. He's really, yeah, really yeah. cool. Kate Blanchett, how did you get on with Kate oh, Blanchett? So I love Kate Blanchett. She's so cool. That's someone that I just, that's on the books. It's like, I, I need to do a movie with Kate Blanchett. I need to when do I, a Tron movie and I need to do a Kate Blanchett movie. <laughs> Tron is with Jeff Bridges? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I love I'm, him. I'm, I'm an 80s kid, so Tron for me at that time, you know, the Atari ST was out or the Commodore 64s. <laughs> like, you know, life was exciting. <laughs> Right. And and uh, Tron for me was like, whoa, this is amazing. So I have a bit of a fixation with it, you know. This year at the Oscars, um, I was working with Kate and Jamie Lee Curtis mm. on on something. But the day they announced the Oscar nominees, we were working together. So I came into work and um, they're like, hey, Kate got nominated for an Oscar. And I was like, hey, Kate. You know, and they're like, hey, Jamie got nominated for an Oscar. Yay. You know? <laughs> I say, and I didn't say anything. And then somebody goes, didn't Mark get nominated for an Oscar? And I'm like, yeah. And so then it made a whole thing about it. It was so sweet. Kate and Jamie, they're like, we took all these pictures together and they got cakes for us and all this stuff. Yeah. And so then we kind of followed each other through all the awards. It wasn't until this thing we did just now um, that she, you know, I really got to know her. And she's so sweet to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, She even, she mentioned me on like Jimmy Kimmel or something. She said, she said my name. She said, oh, I was nominated with a sound mixer, Mark Weingarten, you know. <laughs> Lovely. I was like, oh, so cool. I called, I texted I text her. I told her my mom was so proud. Ah, <laughs> uh, Lovely. Like by, by the, by the body of work that she has, you know, it's just, it's just oh. that thing where it's like, I, I definitely want to be around that energy for a project at least, you know. She's so talented. I mean, yeah. everything she does, and she's different in everything she does too. She's, she's so, so different. Good. People she's, say, oh, they're a chameleon, and it's a, it's a well, it's an overused thing, but she is up there. Like yeah. every everything is, it's just the flip side of what she was the last yeah. time. She's it's so brilliant. good. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I was, but she, so she won the BAFTA, and neither Jamie or I won BAFTAs, but Jamie and I both won Oscars, and she didn't win an Oscar, so I felt like it sort of, <laughs> <coughs> sort of evened out. <laughs> Very few people can say stuff like that, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I want to take you back to another Fincher movie. Okay. Two in a row. Plan for the 100 summer. schools by the end of the summer. We're going to go into the restaurant. 
The club scene and the social network. Yeah, I, yeah. Like, I, I love that stuff. I love working on stuff like that. I love working stuff out like that. And I wanted to ask you about it. So that was really cool. Yeah, I, I was really happy with how that turned out. So what I did there was I, um, the house had this really fantastic system and it got super crazy loud. So mm. I put the playback through that and then I gave the boys earwigs and I turned the earwigs up as high as I could get them, as loud as I could get them. Yeah. And what I would do is I'd, Blast the music, you know the, the the shot that opens the scene is it's like a crane shot that comes in on them. Yeah, so the music's yeah. blasting in on them, and then just before they go to the dialogue, I kill the music to the room, but I keep it going in their earwigs. So they're kind of shouting over their earwig sound the whole time. And it, it worked great. And, yeah, no, it's great. Know. It's great. Um, it's great when stuff like that works, or it's great to play like that for the day. You know what I mean? At work sometimes instead of doing a bit of dialogue. Yeah. It's nice to have that little bit of interaction with the music and then have it all play out in front of you. I, I, yeah. It, I enjoy that kind of thing. I do too. I think I think social network to me was one of the hardest jobs I ever did. It was really wall-to-wall dialogue, all overlapping, just brutal. And uh, we double-boomed everything. It's Sorkin, isn't it? It's Sorkin, yeah. Right, yeah. okay, okay. And, and he was there when we did it. And I, I knew him from the West Wing, but... um. Oh, right. He, he was there when we did um, um, Social Network. He was on set like every day. Mm. And uh, I think I think working, I, now that I see that he's directing, I have a feeling that watching Fincher work was like a good directing lesson for him because Fincher's amazing. Right. You know, I was like, the thing about Fincher is he thinks out loud. And when you block a scene, you know, like every, like what angle he's going to be on for each size of shot, which is so great for me. I love that information because then I feel. You know, like if we're having a hard time with a certain segment of a, a setup, because, you know, how things change and you can mic everything except that one part, but that one part, we know that doesn't matter in the setup because he doesn't care. No. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if it's off camera, we'll let it go. Yeah. Um, but it's nice to have that information. Like, it's a dream. Like, it just makes the day much easier. Oh, yeah. When you, when you know, like, what he wants each thing for. And you know... Exactly. Also, alternatively, if it's not good for that section, then you need to tell him, no, it's not good. We got to... We mm. gotta work on this because this is what you want, and it's not good. And yeah, you're like, I was but. telling you before I got to that stage with certain things. If 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 the information isn't coming across, sometimes I just walk up and go, "What what do you want from it?" You know what I mean? Put them right. on the put them on the spot a little bit, and I find it just spit out what the information you need. You know where right the speed of shooting nowadays is just people get taken away with everything, so the yeah. information isn't always there. I find that so many times they just they just want you to wire everybody all the time. Yeah. Which, you know, which I feel like Yeah. First of all, could I decide how to do the sound? Would yeah. that be okay with you? <laughs> but secondly, um, you know, I feel like I guess actors have gotta be getting used to it at this point. But yeah. I always feel like you're sw- somewhat in- intruding on the actor when you when you wire them. Now some of them don't care at all, some of them but some of them get a little bit, you know, tweaked it's and, personal space you're up in their personal yeah. space and they're trying to you know yeah it's digest the their dialogue and you know they're doing their shit in their head you know but you know so for me i want to i want to minimize that so yeah, that when so and they know so the actors know 
that when I'm, I say they need to be wired, they must need it because I haven't wired them for 10 days or a week or two weeks or whatever it is. So, yeah. you know, I guess he really needs it. So, yeah. you know, they're, even if they don't like it, they're like, well, he doesn't do it unless he needs it. Yeah. However, if you wire them all the time for everything, then that's out. It's like, well, who knows what, they don't know when you need it, when you don't. And they're just like, I mean, I suppose it's just part of the process. It's like, oh, I have to go through hair and makeup, wardrobe and get wired. That's just part of it. But I don't know. You know. I I can I completely agree with your point there. It's like it's nearly like um, you know, it's a it's like a room tone, like you know, take it when you need it kind of thing. And then as well with the with the actors, I'll only wire you if I need, or it's nice to give them a break at least, or yeah. you know, it 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 builds a respect between you. It builds a rapport. Where if if they are just getting wired up every morning, they don't know you. You're just a technician in the background. Right. You know what I right. mean? It it installs that type right. of thinking. And but then certain shows they just won't like they they won't that's what they expect and that's what they want it's like right or certain directors or certain ads exactly. or whatever it is are just like exactly yeah. didn't you wire everybody and then like of course you can get caught like when you don't and then like you need to and you're like god damn it why didn't you wire everybody the first thing this morning that's one thing that really gets to me it's like i like making a point of not wiring everybody and i know mm. what's happening and then you get that little then right. you're caught out and they're all just standing there <laughs> looking at you and you're like my wife makes me take off my clothes in the garage and she leaves out a bucket of warm water and some soap and then she douses everything in hand sanitizer after i leave i mean she's overreacting right not really and stop touching your face dave I love Kate. Okay, we'll put the airlock here. I want 25 rows, 10 beds apiece. The most febrile cases at this end. We'll set up triage outside. FEMA can handle food in the basement. And we'll need to be operational within the next 24 to 48 hours. Gotcha. Nice job, Dave. This'll work. Thanks. Now find me three more just like it. Excuse me, Dr. Mears. Is this coming out of your budget or ours? That's the producers at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Contagion. I completely skipped this. And then I ended up watching it like the night before we talked the first time. And I was uh -huh. like, what the? Like, I know. The movie that predicted the pandemic. <laughs> word for word nearly, wasn't it? It was like <laughs> yeah. crazy. I know. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It was um, Soderbergh, wasn't it? It was Soderbergh, yeah. I've worked with Soderbergh many times, but um, this is the the mo the highest percentage of a movie that I did with him, basically. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I went to Hong Kong with them on this, which was really cool, going to Hong Kong. Kate Winslet, she unrehearsed, did this scene. I, I mean, I was blown away where she had to yeah, like, yeah. draw this stuff on the blackboard and do this thing while she's saying this long, involved thing mm -hmm. that she's talking the whole time and drawing this whole thing. And I was just like, she just nailed it, like, right out of the... I was like, wow, that's, yeah, yeah. that's amazing work. You can nearly tell by the way she carries herself that she's just going to be on it. Mm -hmm. you know she was great. Yeah. She, yeah, she was great. We did this CDC scene in there. That, that was insane. That was pretty much one of the biggest setups I ever did for anything. So Lawrence Fishburne, is, he runs the CDC. He's standing in the middle of this room, and he's got monitors from all these different countries. And he's talking to Germany and Switzerland and, like, you know, what's going on with the, you know, the, with the pandemic. And um, 
so they they want to sh- they've got this abandoned office uh space yeah it was an enormous space like a full city block with all these different rooms in it and they set up live cameras in all these different rooms wow and, and that they were feeding to this board that was you know in front of lawrence yeah i remember and watching that, it and i was i was actually i was like wonder how they did this and then and then um he was able to talk to them. They were able to hear him. He was able to hear them. I gave him an earwig. I had some speakers set up if we wanted to do it that way. But I had uh, I went in there to prep it to look at it, and, it, yeah, and yeah. so I had to put um, I had to have earwigs in every room so that they could hear him. Yeah. And and they had to be on different frequencies or so that they wouldn't screw each other up. And then I had uh, I ran it all through a board. I brought in a guy to do the that board because I wanted to give mix minus to everybody so that they didn't hear themselves, yeah, which yeah. I, I later realized not a problem with earwigs. If the person hears themselves, it doesn't actually really bother them. But I was like, I didn't want them to hear themselves. I, I thought it was going to be a problem. Yeah. So I, and it was like, I think like nine rooms or something. And then I, you know, I brought the um, producer down with me a couple of weeks before looking at the space going, this is an enormous amount of work to like mm. wire this place up. I'm going to need some people to come in and I can't do the work because I'm, we're shooting a movie, you know, right now, like somewhere else. So we brought in a crew and they put in, I think initially 30,000 feet of cable. What? To cable all the rooms to like the central spot to the, to the mix board that was going to do the mix minus that was going to feed me. And then I got there, we were going to shoot on Monday morning. I got there Friday night and they're like (laughs) sitting on, the guys are sitting down, and and it's not connected to the main board. I go, what's going on? It's not connected. They go, oh, we ran out of cable. I go, ah. well, when were you going to call me that? Tell me that. They go, well, I, you know, I don't know. And I was like, but it's Friday night. we got to shoot this Monday morning. Wow. So I called Scott Smith, who's a mixer in Chicago, and I said, I need as much XLR cable as you can give me. And so he said, yeah. So he brought it over on Saturday. I climbed up on a ladder and I like connected all the cables hanging out of the ceiling to like the, the all the way to the rest of the board and labeled everything. <laughs> That's literally you're you're on the biggest setup of your life and you're literally just doing it yourself or finishing it off yourself. That's mad. I was all alone on Saturday doing it myself. That's yeah. mad. And um, <laughs> it worked out great. Yeah, talk talk about going the extra mile. <laughs> <laughs> I was so nervous that Monday morning. I was like, is this gonna work? Yeah. Congratulations. We had a thank you. That's the one you should have won the award for. <laughs> we had a pretty good night, me and the guys that the the guys that um rigged it for me, you know. We had yeah. a pretty great night in Chicago that night. For took sure. Everybody out. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing as well, like what we do as well, like there are those times where when you have that beer, when you get to sit and have that nice meal and treat yourself, right. you know that you've deserved it and it's just really enjoyable isn't yeah, it it's true it's totally true <laughs> yeah amelia be safe give my regards my to dr man it looks good for your trajectory we've calculated two years to saturn it's a lot of drama me look after my family will you please sir we'll be waiting for you when you get back Little older, a little wiser, but happy to see you. Do not go gentle into that good night. 
old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Interstellar. Yeah. Just to have those voices at your fingertips, you know what I mean? That, it yeah. Was, it was, it, it's, a, it's a nice experience, I'd imagine. <laughs> Michael yeah. Caine. And then yeah. even, with the, even with the crescendo there from Hans Zimmer, I know it's not what we do, but then if you're talking about the picture as a whole, it's just, it's another perfect piece, isn't it? Yeah. I really like the music in Interstellar. It, it's I brilliant. Yeah. took a lot of flack because it, uh, in some places, obscured the dialogue, but it didn't bother me. I thought you understood the picture without hearing those words. And uh, yeah, I thought that Hans's music was beautiful. I loved what he did. It is beautiful, yeah. 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 Evidently, they went all over Europe looking for the right organ to record that piece. Really? Hans told me they not only looking for the right organ, but the right uh, player, because he said it was a very complicated place to, piece to play. Yeah. They didn't find somebody who was up to the task, who knew the organ. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I Interstellar was really in, really in, Intense, unique experience. I never worked with um, Chris Nolan before. He's very intense. So this was the first Nolan film. Yeah. yeah. Very intense guy. And like, you know, good filmmaker, driven, but driven and expects everybody else to want to be driven just as hard as he is, which right, is you know, okay. exhausting. And we talked before actually about the placement in the helmet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we put the mics on the foreheads and the helmets. It yeah. took a while to find the right mic that I was happy with how it sounded. But uh, but it worked out. I mean, I, I ended up being really happy with how Iceland turned out, and that was really cool. Iceland was amazing. Yeah. I loved it. I highly recommend to everybody, if you're going somewhere, go to Iceland. It's a really cool country. Uh, a difficult environment in any way to record in, or same as anywhere else? Well, the thing is, the um, everything we shot there was in spacesuits. So mm. everything was radios inside their helmets. Lovely. So it's controlled to a yeah, degree. Yeah, I mean, for, you know, you might be outside in a 50-mile-an-hour wind, wind freezing to death, but the <laughs> yeah. mic is nice and well insulated and sounds good inside there. And in fact, you know, Chris Nolan likes to shoot the IMAX camera, which sounds like a lawnmower, but you couldn't hear it inside with the helmets. So, Perfect. So, yeah, that so was great. And so... The best moments of IMAX for me were when the helmets were on. Tars, I wanted to ask you about Tars. Oh, Tars. Tars the robot, right. Yeah. Yeah, Tars the robot in Interstellar is actually really there. It's like this giant metal thing and um, had people operating it. Uh, there were two of them. There's Tars and his other, I forget the name of the other one, but there's two robots. Right. So Tars is operated by Bill Irwin. He's behind him, and we have Bill Miked. Right. And I think at times it was going through a speaker on TARS. Right. Because when they didn't have their helmets on, and when they had their helmets on, that was another thing I forgot all about. It's like this all massive communication thing that went on with their helmets. Because, you know, we had to have, when they're 
have their helmets on, they have to hear each other. They have to hear Chris Nolan. They have to hear TARS. Yeah. So we had a whole communications, separate mixed communications thing that um, I had somebody else do. So it's nearly like a whole monitor, like a live setup where the monitor engineer is off to the side of the stage. Exactly. Yeah, like like the guy who does the in- in-ears for the band, exactly. Exactly, kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So one of the things that actually uh, helped me out on um, Interstellar was that I did rounders with Matt Damon. And when I did rounders with him, and, and we became really good friends, Matt and I, um, you know, during the course of the shoot. So I came to the lodge, and, and the first night I was there, I went to the bar, and Matt came and sat with me right away. So the two of us are sitting there, you know, having a beer, and Nolan walks in, and I saw him, like, clock it. He goes, oh, you know, Matt Damon is friends with new sound guy, you know? It's like, oh, <laughs> you know? So then I ended up, he came and sat with us, and we ended up actually going back to my room and drinking some more the three of us so initially like that was great because right at the beginning of my time with nolan i you know i got to bond with him through matt it's a, basically it's a great yeah it's a great yeah. little intro yeah yeah and yeah. it means it means a lot it makes it easier yeah so that was great and then oh yeah so <laughs> this is pretty spectacular so they brought me in and i mixed all of iceland which was a couple of weeks of shooting but we didn't see any dailies um, because, you know, they're shipping everything back to the U.S. We're going to see all the dailies when we got back. So day or so after we got back to the U.S., they had they were going to screen all the dailies from Iceland in this screening room at um, Sony, you know, yeah. it all interlock off mag and everything. And I go into the screening room, and they start it up, and it's, stuff is blasting out, distorted. And I'm like, sit there for like 20 seconds. And I said, oh, shit, you know. So I ran back into the projection room. And they're all eating like sandwiches and stuff. And I go, guys, guys. I go, I'm about 30 seconds away from getting fired, okay? we got to fix this right now. Yeah, I yeah. said, it's all distorting like crazy out there. And he's like, oh, I said to the editors, I said, have you screened this before on the way out? They go, yeah, it was fine. I go, okay, something happened, you know. So Grand, okay. So yeah. I go into the screen room and I said, no, no, we got to stop it. First of all, stop the projector right now. Yeah. And then then explain to me what's, what's happening, going on, you know, yeah, what the yeah. chain is, right? So give me some, give me some signal flow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they had um, evidently had a screening of something. Since they tested our dailies out, they screened something else in there and they changed all these parameters. So <laughs> I said, well, show me like the chain. So the, and the chain was so ridiculous. It was like this crappy little cable came out of the back of the projector and went into like a Mackie mixer. And then, and then, um, so I said, okay, now play, turn it on and play a little bit. And I can see the, every light on the Mackie is red. I mean, it's just pinned to the top. Man. So I'm like dialing down the gain on all the individual faders and I get it. Okay. Play it. Okay. It's bouncing and I got it, you know, to be reasonable. And then yeah, I went in yeah. the room and I turned the knob up in the room cause it was, it had been turned all the way down cause somebody had cranked it up in the thing. And anyway, it was fine. But I was just like, man, I, got, I would have been, I'm sure I would have been chicken. Like, you know, they'd be like. But it, it is mad, thing. isn't it? Like you're sitting in a cinema or whatever, and you think all these like hugely technical things are going on in the background. And you walk <laughs> in and it's like a little RCA cable into a yeah, Mackie exactly, mixer. Exactly. It's mad, isn't it? It is mad. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> you didn't get the sack. So you got an Oscar nomination. No, I ended up, I ended up doing okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that worked out. <laughs> I stayed on the job, and I um, and I guess Nolan decided to keep me. So, how many men are they talking about, sir? Churchill wants thirty thousand. Ramsey's hoping we can give him forty-five. 
There are 400,000 men on this beach, sir. We'll just have to do our best. Right, all this mole stays open at all costs. We're in artillery range from the west. If anything else sinks here, the mole's blocked and we're stuck. Can't we load from the beaches? Better than standing out here when the dive bombs come. It's impossible. Too shallow. Is there anything that drafts over three feet can't get near? We don't have enough small boats to ferry men to the destroyers. The mole, it is there, gentlemen. The mole, it is. So it's Christopher Nolan again. So you didn't get the sack. Yeah, I managed to get on another one, yeah. Yeah, you got on another one. And you won the Oscar with that one. And yeah. the CAS? There was, oh, no, an yeah. Oscar and a BAFTA. Yeah, I got a, a, a triple header on that one, I think. Excellent. That scene you just played, uh, I had tremendous difficulty recording it. It was like this howling wind and like one of the old guys was talking really quietly and i was like oh man it's just yeah yeah and i couldn't hear very well because the wind was too much for me and i was mixing off of a diva on, you know on my chest yeah and i you know i had the pots cranked and i'm like i and i was kind of watching the meters going well i, I think it's okay <laughs> well, so, sometimes it's even when you're in that scenario sometimes it's even hard to tell whether it's the sound of the air going across yeah. your headphones yeah, or if exactly. it's on the boom you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's like oh shit no exactly yeah. and meanwhile the waves are crashing like over us and salt water is hitting us and it was just like well i think this is going to be all right <laughs> i think like, i hope so you know but it turned it turned out fine it turned out okay but exactly it's like it's like <laughs> you're experienced enough to go oh, this is fine you know what I mean? Yeah, it's gonna work. <laughs> so you were you were in the elements a lot with Dunkirk, were you? A lot, yeah. I mean, the wind was the big factor. I knew it when I scouted. I'm like, this is this is gonna be this is what we're gonna fight on this show is the wind predominantly. And then yeah, yeah. the salt water. I didn't really realize that we were gonna have so much of that to deal with because you know you go out on the, the mole. The pier is called the mole, and you got on mm. the mole and. You know, it's the thing's over a mile long. You get out toward the end, and the waves are just hammering. You know, and, and uh, there was a pretty spectacular moment out there one day when uh, they had these air cannons they would set, set off to mimic like uh, explosions in the water, like you know, mortars or whatever hitting the water. Yeah, yeah. And we had we, they had these air cannons, and they were going off over the dialogue. So I said to Chris Nolan, I said, hey, why don't we take a minute, let me get um, context to the special effects guys so that they can um, do the Sink. borders yeah. not, on, not on the dialogue. And then he holds up this big switch he's got in his hand and he goes, I'm doing the mortars. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he was doing it intentionally, like right on it. I mean, I don't know, it's his thing, so guess that's when he wanted the explosions, you know, when they were talking. But it was kind of like, oh, okay. All right, yeah, then. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's your movie. You so then you just, where you want them. yeah, that's one of those situations where you go, yeah, okay. And you record it and send it yeah, in. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my take on Nolan is that, I mean, I you know, every time people complain, they can't hear the dialogue in his movies. Mm. I don't, me, who should be upset about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't see that I can't understand the story. You know, it's not like I'm missing exactly. pieces, missing something that. Yeah. So I think, you know, he knows. Yeah. There's one point in Interstellar where it's a problem that I've been, you know, I've personally had a lot of people talk to me about, which is there's a line that Michael Caine says that yeah. um, it's when he's dying and they ask him if he solved the problem of gravity. And he says 
his response. I forget what his response is, but you can't hear his response. And Maybe so you're not I meant said, to. Well, I said to Nolan, I said, um, I remember recording that he said something, and Nolan goes, oh, yeah, I cut it out. So yeah, yeah. he intentionally cut out what he said. Yeah. So there's, you can't hear it. Like even It's not even like it's low in there somewhere. Yeah. He removed it on purpose. Yeah, it's like reading a book. Your your mind fills in that piece. You yeah. know what I mean? He's 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 inviting you to right. elaborate on the story. Yeah. But I was like, I remember recording something he said there, Chris. He goes, Oh yeah, I, I, I got it. I, got it. Yeah. I did send that in, didn't I? Yeah. But, <laughs> did, but like, right? it was I'm like imagining I, I, it. <laughs> with Interstellar or anything like, I don't even remember. Like I told yeah. you, I'm an easygoing watcher. You know, right? In, Interstellar for me. You know, I'm 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 grappling with my brain, just saying, stay, stay in, you know, stay on target, stay on target, pay uh-huh. attention. But you know, I'm, it never bothered me. It never it never uh-huh. was a question to me. These are all just um, complaints that I've heard off other people. Like, right. N- never occurred to me. I mean, what, one thing I found really fascinating in the process of making Interstellar was that what Nolan would do on stage with the rockets and stuff. Yeah. Was he would have projections outside the window. So when you filmed toward a window and you saw like the, the you felt the movement of the ship like spinning or whatever it was, yeah. it was because there was a projection spinning. And it wasn't something that was done in post. It actually was being filmed through the window and yeah. it gave the feeling that the ship was moving. Yeah, yeah. Kind of genius stuff. So we had like all these projectors and the stage was crazy because then the rockets are really humongous and then the yeah. projectors are humongous and they're up on um like forklifts or something i forget mm. like jack way up in the air to get them where they need to be so there's like all this heavy machinery like forklifts and just making the know, shot work yeah and making it work mm. and then and, oh and ritter fans on forklifts and stuff and then when they would move things around, it was just, it sounded like a construction site because they start up all those things and it was beep, yeah. beep, beep, beep. It's like so loud in there. It's crazy. <laughs> so his thing is, it's all practical. As much as possible, yeah. Yeah. Even yeah. the fires on the beach in Dunkirk, that's practical. I don't know what those guys made that out of, but it was, yeah. I mean, you see it from the air, the air, from the air, and it's like huge fires they're, got, they're making. It's definitely a thing I can get behind. Like, I, I think the mind switches off when there's too much green screen. I know, I know there's yeah. an awful lot of effects nowadays and we, like, it's hard to even tell the difference, but yeah. I think in, in the background, somewhere in the back seat, the mind kind of just dulls, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's back to you. the old, it's back to the old animatronics and stuff like that. I think the mind is a little bit more activated when it's, when it's uh-huh. paying attention to that kind of stuff. So I'd love to see, I'd love to see an awful lot of directors taking that stance, you know what I mean? Yeah, to a certain extent. I yeah. mean, I was telling you earlier about the ships because the, um, yeah. you know, they had, we have all these pre-production meetings and half the meetings were consumed with, like, to get this ship to Dunkirk on this date, mm. you know, it, had to leave, it had to leave this port at this time and be in this port, you know, it's like, because they're, they're coming <laughs> from all over the world because yeah, yeah. Chris wanted real ships. He didn't want to CGI all the ships on the water. But so it was crazy. So they were like picture ships as well, like picture cars. They didn't work. Yeah. But I mean, we're talking like battleships and stuff. I mean, like giant picture ships, you know, yeah, like yeah. humongous things. I went down there. I recorded all those boats. I went into every boat. Oh, and beautiful. recorded every sound. It was so much beautiful. fun. Beautiful. Yeah. But um, yeah, there were so many cool ships there. 
and we would climb we would go boat to boat we had our own little zodiac that we'd go out to the big boats in and then you know that netting on the side of the big battleships and stuff we'd like climb yeah, up yeah. the netting with the diva hanging off my arm and stuff <laughs> so that's ridiculous. great it's ridiculous but it was it was cool on that one you knew that you were putting the work in for sure oh uh, yeah it was exhausting the whole movie plus dunkirk itself was so dreary like every first couple of weeks is rain like every single day and and that and the salt water hitting everything. <laughs> I mean, it was it was grim. I'm gonna hit you with your last one. Let's do it. He's gonna burn in. I'm going after him. Come on, give me tone, give me tone, give me tone. Step out of it, coyote. Come on, come on. Come on, come coyote. On, coyote. Come on. Come on. Coyote! 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 Coyote, you okay? You okay? I'm okay. I'm good. 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 That's enough for today. That was close. <laughs> Too close. Tom Cruise mad for a bit of tone. Yeah, he loves that tone. He loves the tone. Give me tone, give me tone. We've all been in that position. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> when you were prepping for this or when you had it in your mind, it's the planes, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the planes. Yeah, the rest of the movie is kind of regular, but the planes is, that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, the when I met Joe, the director, um, he kind of dropped at the interview. It's like, oh, and by the way, uh, we want to record all the dialogue in flight on supersonic jets for real, like not on stage, green screen. You know, it's all going to be done for real. And I was like, okay. And, uh, you know. Let me go away and meditate on that. Yeah. It was yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, hmm, all right. Uh, okay. So I probably need to make that work somehow. So then, you know, uh, there was extensive scouting on that movie. So I went out to the... Um, they call them naval air stations with the, to the bases where they keep the planes. So I went out there and I looked at the planes a lot and I talked to a million people. And so eventually I was able to find the right group of people to help me out. Because what I, what I thought I would do is try to tap into the plane's communication system to get the helmet sound. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to actually put mics in their helmets. The helmets, are, remember they're in real flight. The helmets actually do provide oxygen at times at different altitudes. And... And of course, communication is critical. I didn't want to do anything that could possibly interfere with communication or with their safety. And there was an added factor, which is whatever, all of them needed to be able to eject if they had to in, in, in case of an emergency. So none yeah. of my equipment could possibly tie them to the plane. It had to be on them. It's a lot of consideration. And then I suppose the limitation kind of guided you in the way that you needed to do it, which it, is it, yeah. help, helpful in itself, but... It's on some level, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I basically had decided, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to find a way to tap into the communications. I even considered uh, recording it from the ground because the transmission does come through to the ground. But yeah, and they archive it, but it's um, it's not doesn't sound so great on the ground. Like it sounds much better. You, you know, you're so far away from the yeah, actual yeah. source. You know, you want to be at the source. So, what I really wanted was to somehow tap into the plane. And get their in helmet sound. And then in conversation with a pilot one day, 
He said, well, you know, a lot of guys listen to their iPods while they're flying. They listen to music while they're flying. And I said to him, well, how do they do that? Do they have their own little headsets? He goes, no, they play it through the helmet sound. And I go, well, how do they tap into that? And he said, yeah, well, there's, yeah. there's a place on the survival vest, which is the last piece of equipment they put on before they fly, the most outer garment, if you will. And I thought, all right, that's where we're going to tap in. We're going to do it in the vest, and I'll put like radio transmitter in the vest, and I'll put a receiver somewhere in the plane. That was my plan. I tell and, you, were relieved at that point to find that. Yeah, I was really relieved, and I auditioned different um, mics that could be put in the masks too, because they had different brands, different models. So um, we picked. I picked the one that I liked sounded best, and then we. Were they anything? Were they anything in relation to what we use, or were they just like sporadic no. kind of pilot mics? They're completely unique. Like to me, they're like little round discs yeah. that go like, in, and they have like four holes drilled in them, and they have a weird plug in the back that plugs right, into okay. the thing. It's totally unique to us. I don't know. I got a seven four four, and I put a solid state hard drive in it so that um, I didn't want to have any moving parts because there's so yeah. much g g force in the plane. Completely, yeah. And I had two 411 receivers that were going to receive two SMs. One was going to be connected to the communications. The other, I was going to put a lav, like, on the front of their vest, maybe, mm. possibly. And then I had, uh, it was 744, I had two additional tracks, which I thought I might run ambient mics inside the, the plane. Yeah, yeah. So we did it. Um, you know, the, unfortunately, the cables didn't arrive in time to try them out. So the very first time we used them was... Tom Cruise's first day flying in the plane doing dialogue. That was a little, <laughs> a camera house made a remote that would start all six cameras at the same time. And they, I sent them the right parts to um, interface to start at 744 also. So, so Tom, with one button press, he could start all six cameras and the audio recorder, which Perfect. was his request that he was able to start and stop it. Yeah. And then they took off and they came back. And when we watched dailies, it sounded fine. Everything worked great. But we saw... Tom Cruise pointed out there's something over my shoulder blocking the back window. And we're like, well, what is that? And I'm looking in the picture and I'm saying, that's the 744. I go, that's yeah. the sound recorder. Recorder had to go. And I told the key grip, I said, you know, who, the grips mounted it for me. I'm like, we're going to have to move it. And he said, well, we can't move it. I mean, we had to wait six weeks for the, Na the Navy to approve it. So I went on the Electrosonics website and I saw that they made this thing called a PDR, a personal data recorder or something like that. And it had a TA5 for an input and it had an input for time code and so it could sync to the camera so, so I, immediately, I immediately bought a couple of those and i put one uh they're about the same size as an sm so i was able to put it in the pocket of um the survival vest and uh the only thing was i had to tell tom that he couldn't start and stop the sound recorder which i did and he was fine with it so i really enjoyed tom cruise actually he was really nice to work with he was good to work with was he it was great it was like that's great really that's great to hear kind of helpful and supportive and nice every flight we would um you know go into the person's vest we'd plug in one of the pdr we hit record we put the vest on them send them off and then when they came back we'd download the card from it and uh the dit would sync everything up and it all worked great so was there any Point where to be two or three of them up in the sky, like the yeah, oh yeah, yeah, the the yes, multiple, yeah, yeah, many times there were at least two actors in two different planes talking to each other, but that all came yeah. through the helmet, so it all worked out. It's amazing, and that's the dialogue that we hear in the movie. Yeah, yeah, it actually it came across. Great. It was totally everything came out completely usable. It was crazy.
And it's like I was saying it to you before. It's like trying to bag in the trunk of the car. Yeah. But, but like on steroids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. mad. And also, you know, don't even forget all the G-forces and stuff. But And yeah. of the, of literally hundreds of flights, it was hundreds. We only had one failure the whole time, and I'm not 100% sh- sure that why that was. Yeah, I That's a great those, testament for the electrosonics pack. Those, those things were gear. amazing. That's amazing. It's just nice when it works. Uh, Maverick was actually, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I never dealt with the yeah. military or, you know, that whole giant machine. Um, and Jerry uh, Bruckheimer machine kind of thing. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. we had Scott Robertson as our first AD. who's an old friend of mine. He actually uh, was the first AD on K-Pax, the Kevin Spacey movie that I did yeah. way back when. It makes and, it much easier when you know everybody. And he's a really, really cool AD, really sweet. He's now become a producer, unfortunately. I, but but so and he really <laughs> set the tone. I mean, Joe, the director, also super nice, super calm guy, so... Right. Top Gun is, in the end, ended up being one of the most pleasant shoots I ever worked on. Everybody was so cool. That's a great thing to say. Yeah. And congratulations again. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Oscar and the CAS, wasn't it, this year? Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's great. great. Thanks very much for talking to us, Mark. It'd be great to see more work in the future. All right, thanks, Patty. Thanks so much. It was really, <laughs> really enjoyed talking to you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, take care. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to take a moment to remember Richard Topham Jr., an anchor in the New York film sound community and a great facilitator for the start of many careers. Rest in peace. For what it's worth, it's never too late. Or in my case, too early. Be whoever you want to be. There's no time limit. Stop whenever you want. You can change or stay the same. There are no rules to this thing. You can make the best or the worst of it. I hope you make the best of it. I hope you see things that stop you. Yeah, feel things you never felt before. Hope you meet people with a different point of view. Hope you live a life you're proud of. If you find that you're not, I hope you have the strength to start all over again. Just wish and hope for something to come true. You have to make it happen. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? 
we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.